Future stability in Afghanistan, we hear from an advisor on the ground hoping to make it happen. We get unique access to NATO's Maritime Operations Centre in Naples and the military explains its plans for Olympic security. They'll have Typhoon aircraft operating at relatively low levels they wouldn't ordinarily see and similarly they'll see helicopters uh, intercepting rogue aircraft playing the part of people trying to fly to Olympic Park. First today, though, the Secretary-General of NATO, Agnes Fo Rasmussen, has reaffirmed a commitment for troops to remain in Afghanistan for another two and a half years. Speaking after a meeting with David Cameron at Downing Street, Mr Rasmussen said NATO forces would hand over security to the Afghan people by the end of 2014, with troops remaining to assist with training in, in 2015. He said Mr Cameron did not raise the prospect of speeding up the withdrawal of British troops. This is definitely not a rush for the exit. We have reaffirmed the principle in together, out together. But be prepared that as we hand over lead responsibility to the Afghans, we will of course change the role of our troops with more and more focus on support and you will also see some uh, drawdowns. But we will stay committed throughout the transition periods. I'm joined now by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. There, he said it. Definitely not a rush for the exits. It seems Britain and America are keen to push that message too, with Obama on his visit to Afghanistan talking about finishing the job this week. Yeah, it depends where you are. I mean, certain people go and can go whenever they like. The Australians are coming out a bit earlier. The French are coming out earlier. I mean, if if, if uh, Mr Sarkozy remains uh, in Lucid Palace, well, they're going 2013. You've got his opponent in Sunday's election saying, oh, we're coming out at the end of this year. Well, he can't come out at the end of this year because the operational detail will actually allow you just, you know, take your pyjamas off, put your uniform on and come home. You can't do it that way. Physically, it can't be done. But what we have to look at is far more important. The Americans decided that they had, uh, or the, the Pentagon's deciding, that the goals are not being reached. And that is extraordinarily important. You cannot get the guarantee of the goals they had hoped for, like the Afghan army's uh, uh, capabilities. Not quite the uh, message that Obama was putting out, though, was oh. it, when his visit to Afghanistan, saying that they are going get, to get hold of al-Qaeda and sort them out, that the end is in sight, it's a winnable war. Those kind, that kind of rhetoric was very positive, wasn't it? Well, not only that, not only a winnable war, but we're actually sort of coming to the end of, of uh, let's say, al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda isn't the problem. Uh, how will the uh, Haqqani... Uh, Taliban uh, behave, are their loyalties guaranteed? The uh, Afghanistan uh, tal- Taliban have not have not even decided on the negotiations, if any. These things can be reversed so quickly, and that is what everybody is being realistic about. And what happens? OK, uh, uh, Obama goes to Afghanistan, brings, brings as, as one American said to me, brings a little class to the store for the sort of few hours he was there. And what happens? Two hours after Obama goes, seven dead, 18 wounded, Taliban saying, listen, take that as symbolism. Two hours after, you all quit more than 18, uh, seven dead and 18 wounded, if we so wish. Indeed, uh, but this agreement that Obama signed with President Karzai, enduring commitment to Afghanistan 10 years, um, does that leave a lot of work to be done in Chicago at the NATO conference? Um, next ma- no, month? all that is, you know, there are lots of meetings and they want to sign, they want to have a gold pen affair in Chicago at the, uh, on the 20th, 21st of this month. Ryan Crocker, 
who is the man that's negotiated this agreement for Obama, who is the expert at, at agreements. He says it can say enough about a commitment after, the American commitment after, and that's what uh, uh, President Karzai has to have. He can say, OK, the Americans are going, we're not sure about the Afghan National Army, but we've got an agreement, and he can wave the bit of paper. It's a bit like Chamberlain, you know, the bit of paper. There isn't a dollar sign. I looked at that agreement as, as far as it's published. There isn't a dollar sign in it. In other words, the Americans have not committed, and, and Obama's not committing himself, nor any future president, nor America, to, to the extent of, of the aid needed. Well, um, as you're alluding there, alongside the military mission in Afghanistan, there is, of course, the huge task of providing the stability needed once the troops have left. The UK has a team of stabilisation advisers on the ground throughout Afghanistan trying to do just that. One of them is Tim Gurney, a former deputy ambassador to Afghanistan who's now working in Helmand province. Simon Newton, our reporter in Afghanistan, talked to him and joins us now. Hello, Simon. Uh, so we hear a lot about stabilisation. What did he have to say? Well, he's worked in Nadi Ali uh, with the British and uh, Marja with the US Marines, and he's now working in the far, far south of Helmand in a place called Kanishin, which is about 50 miles from the Pakistan border. It's a desert area, very backward, very poor water supplies, uh, and, and the crop there, the main crop is poppy, so it's a very challenging place to bring stabilisation. The obvious question to ask him really is what does that actually mean in practical terms? Now, his shorthand explanation is, is basically that it means offering local people something the Taliban can't, be that clean water or health clinics, but also making them see the government as a better alternative to the Taliban. But he also said that the approach has changed. In the initial, um, initial time that I was here, we were very much in the business of working with the Afghan government to help deliver things like schools and clinics, all the classic things that people need uh, in the way of services from a central government. But in more recent times, as, as we're moving towards the process of transition, we've rather got away from that. And what we're working on now is building the links between the, the provincial administration and the district administration. These are the things that Afghanistan will need once ISAF start to withdraw, that the systems that should be in place are in place and that they're actually operating. So rather than ISAF, rather than the coalition uh, doing things with the Afghan government, it's the Afghan government doing things on its own. So the big question, I guess, is whether it's really making a difference, Simon. Well, he's very realistic about what's possible here. He told me, for instance, that uh, we might think that electricity would be a key demand for, for, people, for Afghans on the ground, but for many people there, it's not even on their radar. And, and I asked him whether the Afghan police and army are really up to the job of keeping this country secure and stable. Now, he's not a military man, obviously. He's a diplomat or an ex-diplomat, but this was his assessment of things. I think the way to look at it, as I've said um, ever since I've been here, is in many ways Afghanistan's best viewed in the rearview mirror rather than the windscreen. If you look at the, through the windscreen, you've got quite a mountain to climb. But if you look back through the rearview mirror, what we've achieved in the time we've been here, what the Afghans have achieved in the time we've been here, they've moved a long way. And although, by again, by ISAF, by NATO, by Western standards, the, uh, the military and police may not be up to you know, what ideally we would like, they've come an awful long way in, in the time we've been working with them. And they are very capable. And, of course, Simon, he's a former deputy ambassador. What made him want to leave the relative safety of an embassy and go back to Afghanistan in such a dangerous area? He's actually been struck by an IED, hasn't he, doing his job? 
Yes, he's, he's actually a pretty fascinating guy. As well as in Afghanistan, he was also Deputy High Commissioner in Australia. So he did the, the cocktail circuit, as you might say. But he decided to come back here and get out on the ground. He's been in two convoys, he told me, which have been hit by IEDs. And he's lived with the guys on the ground, including three para at uh, patrol base Shazad. So he's seen what's really going on. He even had to go undergo a psychological assessment to get the job out here. Uh, but he says he was drawn back to working in Afghanistan. You know, I thought I could offer, put something back, I think. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I did. And it's been an amazing experience, as I say, to get out of the ivory tower uh, and get down on the ground uh, and work at a tactical level with both the British military and the US Marines, which is what I do now. Uh, and it's been a fascinating experience. Uh, I don't regret it for a moment. Yeah, sure, there's been one or two, shall we say, uncomfortable uh, moments. Um, but uh, the overall experience has been pretty amazing. I think uh, the United States and the Br British, uh, Britain, are, are extremely blessed with the quality of the, of the military and the armed forces they've got. There's some seriously good people working out there. So what about the Taliban? Does he think they can be brought on side? Well, I asked him that question, and it's a difficult one, obviously. He thinks some of them can, but definitely not all of them. He believes that if teams like his own can offer a better alternative, then some accommodation of sorts with the less hardcore elements is probably going to happen. I think inevitably, I mean, I'm not a counterinsurgency expert. That's, that's the military's role. Um, but, I, but I think it's inevitable from, from what we've seen over, over recent history. Northern Ireland is an example. Um, at some stage, you've got to talk to the people who, who are potentially moderate, who you can bring into the tent who are prepared to encompass some form of democracy. And there are inevitably people out there who, who are not interested in that. And, and we have to deal with them in a different way. But there will be people who are prepared to come on side. Simon Newton in Afghanistan, thank you very much for that. Um, Christopher, the Taliban has announced the start of its summer offensive today. Why make that announcement? Well, make it today. That's what they've done. And they said it starts today. Why today? Obama's just been there. Um, they're making a whole series of announcements. They're saying, look, we don't mind. All this sort of diplomatic stuff, this agreement with President Karzai, it doesn't actually matter. You see, there is, with Mr Gurney, a perfect example of a guy who's doing a brilliant job, undoubtedly, who says, I work with Royal Marines and the Army. Great guys. Who does he work with when the Royal Marines and the Army pull out? And that, effectively, is the message of Taliban. Uh, and what, and what, what should his work be doing long term, do you think? What kind of, how could the work he's doing not be reversible? Um, because nobody can guarantee his work. They can't guarantee the work environment, the sort of work he's doing. And that's why the ANA is the key to this thing. Uh, alongside it, as we've always said, the other part of that key, uh, that, that process, that code, is, is Pakistan. And it's the aid that Pakistan, not in physical aid, but the political aid, the military aid, etc., and control over their own people, including the Haqqani uh, people who are a bunch of murderers, uh, is what they do will actually help people like Gurney to continue it. And it's a perfect example of what's happening uh, elsewhere in the Middle East. People are starting to look at it and says, if you have aid from America stamped all over school scholarships, you'll do better than having... Apache stamped all over uh, Afghanistan. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come, tough times for Britain's defence industry and warships, anti-aircraft missiles and typhoon jets. Have the military's plans for Olympic security gone too far? This is BFBS. Sit rep. 
What does NATO do in Naples? Well, BFBS reporter Jeff Mead has been finding out. He's been out to Italy where he was given rare access to NATO's Mediterranean surveillance hub. We're the first British broadcaster to be allowed into the top secret maritime operations centre in Italy. Uh, Jeff's back from his trip and joins us now. Hi Jeff. What exactly goes on in Naples then? Well, Naples is one of three major NATO command centres in Europe. You touched on the uh, maritime operations centre. Um, uh, that has a key role to play in uh, the whole, uh, it's called Operation Active Endeavour, it's been underway since 9-11 and it is a way in which all shipping within the Mediterranean is monitored, is checked, There's a lot of very uh, sophisticated surveillance goes on there with computer uh, computers programmed to spot unusual activity and alert uh, sea or air forces to investigate. Um, in the time that's been operating, they've uh, they've hailed, as they say, they've contacted 100,000 merchant ships and actually boarded 155 of them. So there's a very practical day-to-day -day mission at the moment, uh, which really bears on the security of us all in the rest of Europe. But some big changes ahead. Tell us about those. Yes, indeed, because that uh, key maritime element, in by the end of this year, most of uh, Allied Joint Force Command will have moved to a brand new multi-million pound headquarters on the outskirts of Naples actually take it out of range should Vesuvius erupt again which is a, 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 a volcanologist say is a strong possibility but what won't move is the maritime element uh, they will merge with Northwood in northwest London into a new um, and smaller command it makes um, some some sense although not everybody is convinced by the wisdom of that amalgamation Vesuvius aside, does it make sense closing the centre which is based at a seaport? That's the point really. Um, technology would suggest it doesn't. You can, you can, you know, if you can steer drones over Afghanistan from, from Florida, then you can monitor the Mediterranean from northwest London, uh, you know, given advances in, in software and communications. But there are, it's thought, certain advantages to be based at a large seaport where actually um, sh ships coming in, warships coming in and their senior officers and commanders can actually have face-to-face -face talks with their command and describe in detail what happened. Um, I spoke to Britain's most senior officer in Naples, he's Rear Admiral John Westbrook and he's Chief of Staff of NATO Maritime Headquarters and he explained how it would all work. The, the, the wolf closest to the sledge is a NATO command structure reformation and here in Naples we're going to be going from two maritime headquarters, one here currently, one in Northwood, both those headquarters will shut and from those ashes we will create a single maritime headquarters that the decision made politically is to put that headquarters in, into Northwood. So that's where it will go. So from a maritime perspective, this building will cease to operate after 41 years uh, and we will transfer all that maritime focus to Northwood. It would be um, unwise to, uh, just by the geographic location of our headquarters, to assume that NATO's gateway to, the, to, to Africa and, and gateway through to the Middle East has gone away. It's, it, is, it is a strategically significant area. That's not lost on anybody. From the maritime perspective, how we can continue to understand the environment being dislocated from the environment is a challenge. We need to find new ways of working and I'm sure, I know, that's exactly what we're focusing on. And that means we engage across a wider spectrum with different organisations. So I'm confident that the focus in the Mediterranean won't be lost, we'll just have to find new ways of doing it. And nationally, the UK are very sensitive to this region.
Uh, Jeff, how many British servicemen are currently based in Naples? The strength varies, obviously, but it's around about 200 tri-service, so a British community with families uh, about 600 strong. Uh, we're not the largest, I think, second or third biggest contingent there. And what's daily life like? Well, it's interesting, and, um, you know, you should be careful about upsetting people from Naples, given that city's uh, history and culture, but, but there is a lot of crime. Uh, the city itself... Uh, is uh, there's much evidence of disrepair, lack of investment, poor roads, dilapidated buildings. Uh, and perversely against all that, there is quite a steep increase in cost. Uh, Mario Monti's government, the new uh, Prime Minister, has brought in a lot of increased in taxes, VATs 23%, to try and repair uh, Italy's uh, bedraggled economy. And um, that is really bearing down very hard on the Brits there, because they're not only uh, having to face daily extra costs day in and day out, but uh, they say that their uh, living overseas allowance is failing to keep pace with this. And uh, Rear Admiral Westbrook said, uh, he explained how those Italian economic problems have had a real impact on those posted there. The double whammy affects everybody. It's, it's not rank or rate uh, uh, targeted. Yeah, I do absolutely sympathise with, with that. Um, we need to make certain that we continue to make service abroad wherever it would be an, an attractive option. You're right to highlight that the cost of living in this particular part of Italy has, has risen exponentially over the last 12 months. We're, we're um, about to receive a visit from the Armed Forces Pay Review Body in, in, in next week or so, and in, in uh, the end of this year, about September, we get a, uh, a visit from the LOA review team. So. Yes, we're sensitive to it. Uh, what really concerns me is the speed at which we can react to these changes. Um, our cost of living has increased drastically in a short time, but our ability to respond to it quickly isn't, isn't matching that. Um, I think we need to take a good look at allowances overseas and how we deliver those. Um, but Naples is a good place to be. Um, we just need to make sure, as I said at the beginning, that, that we, we find the balance of reward and recognition right. Because it's not only financial recognition, there, there unfortunately is a tendency to believe that, that NATO isn't the place we put our best people. Well, evidenced recently by our contribution to operations, that's not true. Uh, and it's a perception rather than a reality. So there's a whole host of things. Uh, and I know that um, CDS and the Secretary of State are aware of this. So, Jeff, how difficult are forces families finding it in Naples at the moment? Well, you heard Admiral Westbrook there say that the Armed Forces Pay Review body is out there next week, but, of course, the changes that they might recommend won't come into play into people's pay packets until next year, and it really is a struggle. I met one family, uh, and they're not alone, where uh, the head of the household, who happens to be a senior uh, royal signaller, uh, has to take a part-time job as a satellite dish installer just to make ends meet. Um, Christopher, if NATO's maritime surveillance system can be relocated to the UK so decisively as it will next year, what was the point of having it based in Naples in the first place? Well, traditionally it goes back to April the 4th, 1949, when NATO was actually formed. And therefore you've got certain governments, and they say, we want a piece of the action. I'm at one time, you weren't going to have anything at Northward. And so they gave the uh, commander-in-chief a, a major naval, naval command, uh, CNC or Sink Chan, as a result of it, and, and to some extent. But I think, actually, that Naples is becoming far more important than it ever was. And one of the things, small things, in most people's mind, but it's a bigger thing for the Italians, and that is the mass migration of people from, from, the, uh, from the spring, the Arab spring, who are leaving North Africa, Sahara North Africa, and their first stop is Lampedusa, and then into, into Italy. NATO's got the biggest role 
biggest role of actually sort of checking these uh, the, the sort of imports of people. It is enormously disruptive and destabilising for the Italians and the rest of Southern Europe. All right, Christmas, stay with us. Jeff Mead, thank you. PFBS SIPREP. Britain's biggest defence firm admits it's in for a lean year, blaming a worldwide downturn in military operations as well as UK defence cuts and delays in its latest deal with Saudi Arabia. BAE Systems is predicting little sales growth. Times are tough for the defence industry and the people working in it, as Will Inglis discovered. BAE Systems expects raucous protest at its shareholder annual general meetings. It's usually anti-arms trade campaigners, but this year it was the firm's own employees. Every one of my people is getting made redundant at some point over the next sort of six or seven months. Ray Cartwright is union convener at BAE Systems Bruff in East Yorkshire, home of the Hawk. Manufacturing there is to cease with the loss of 900 jobs. There are some uh, Hawk orders in the market. We've argued all along that it's, it, it's a daft decision to move the Hawk out of Bruff and move it elsewhere. The firm's consolidating fast jet manufacture to its sites at Wharton and Salmsbury in Lancashire. Inside the AGM though, anyone with a shareholding could pose questions. When one bruff worker, Steve Olson, told the chairman Dick Olver he didn't think the firm was doing all it could to save the plant, he was cheered by his colleagues. At one point, Mr Olver told shareholders that when one door closes, another one opens and went on to list new jobs in Barrow building submarines or in London on cyber security. None of that went down at all well with the aircraft builders from Hull. The crowds outside were baying for he or chief exec Ian King to come down and talk to them. Later I caught up with UK Group Managing Director Nigel Whitehead and asked how the firm was reacting to the worldwide trend toward lower defence spending. The company has to respond to the environment we're in and governments all around the world are responding to essentially a global recession. So from that perspective it's really important that we are as dynamic as the market is and that we're agile and respond to that. So the steps that we're taking as an organisation are to make sure that we are the right size and shape and offering the right products, relevant products, for the market that we're in today. BAE is putting in place a retraining program and trying to relocate some workers from Bruff to its two remaining aircraft factories. But the vast majority are likely to end up jobless in a city which already suffers notoriously high unemployment. Will Inglis for BFBS in Westminster. The final security preparations are being made this week ahead of the London Olympics. Exercise Olympic Guardian is underway and all three services are involved. The Royal Navy is putting HMS Bulwark through its paces near Weymouth where the sailing events will take place this summer. Yesterday, four typhoons arrived at RAF Northolt in West London. Fighter jets haven't been based there since 1944. Air Commodore Guy Waterfall told BFBS's Olympic security correspondent James Banks it's going to be an interesting time over the capital sky. Um, it will be unusual air activity for people who live in and around London and in the home counties. They'll have typhoon aircraft operating at relatively low levels that they wouldn't ordinarily see, and similarly they'll see helicopters uh, intercepting um, rogue aircraft, uh, playing the part of people trying to fly to Olympic Park, and then us exercising everything from sensing, from warning, and then steering these aircraft away uh, from the Olympic Park. And what sort of threats are you preparing for, and what are the scenarios you'll be playing out? 
Um, firstly, there's no specific threat against the Olympic Games themselves. Um, everything we're doing is a precaution, a necessary precaution, and we're only doing the absolutely essential. And the level of threat varies, and we're working at everything from the slowest moving air vehicle all the way up to a large passenger airliner. That was Air Commodore Gary Waterfall talking to our Olympic security correspondent. So no specific threat to the Games has been declared. Air Vice Marshal Stuart Affer is the Air Component Commander for Olympic Air Security. The first thing to say is what we are doing actually is very similar to what other similar nations have done for events like the Olympic Games. As we have developed the plan over the last year, we've looked at what other countries do and actually sort of as we've put together these different targets, what we learn is you need a range of sort of capabilities to meet the range of sort of threats and therefore that's why in one end we'll have the fighter aircraft which are part of our normal day-to-day -day air security arrangements anyway way and then enhancing it with other th capabilities like the helicopters ability to fly that a little bit slower to help understand what's going on and as a last resort potentially to have ground-based air defense so it's about a layered response to a threat that to, could be quite varied. That was Air Vice Marshal Stuart Affer. Well, our security, Olympic security correspondent James Banks is with the Army for its part of the exercise in south-east London. Jenny joins us now. James, there's been lots of talk this week about the use of the Army's ground-based air defence. What can you tell us about that? Well, yes, there has. I mean, we've had months and months of speculation about whether it will be deployed or not, uh, and we don't, still don't have the answer, I'm afraid to say. Uh, but on Monday morning, I went to Scotland Yard, uh, where there was a, a joint briefing between the police and the armed forces, uh, and there General Parker uh, said that six potential air defence locations had had been recceed and, and had been sighted across East London, um, four of which will site, if it's deployed rather, will site a rapier, which is an area air defence weapon, and two of which will, will site a high-velocity missile, which is a point defence weapon. Some of the locations are in open areas, very much like Blackheath, where I am right now. Uh, others are in residential areas to the north of the river. Uh, and it's, it's hit the headlines this week. One resident, uh, a chap called Brian Whelan, has been complaining about the fact they're going to sight these high-velocity missiles on top of his, his residential block. Uh, and he's been citing you know, problems with he worries about security of his own block and the, and the security of the area as a whole. Um, and as I said, no decision has, has yet to be taken as to whether they're actually going to deploy these assets or not. Uh, but this week we have seen them deploy into their locations as part of the bigger exercise Olympic um, Guardian. Now one of their key um, benefits of deploying these, especially with the rapier, is their radar. Now that radar forms one of these layers that we heard about earlier in those previous clips from, from my time in Northolt yesterday. It's forming this layer, each many many different assets form this layer from the ground defence guys here in, in uh, Blackheath all the way through to the typhoons in Northolt. So quite a complex plan and we still obviously don't know the full extent of what will actually happen during the games. And James, is it over the top? Well, the military are very keen to say that their posture is prudent and proportionate, tricky to say. Um, and as, as, uh, as we heard in the clips, they're saying that this is nothing unusual compared to what we've seen in previous Olympic Games. I think the fact is in Beijing there was a large military presence and we were, we were probably not aware of everything that had been done because of the, 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 you know, the, the fact that there is such a huge presence. 
and before that, you know, looking in, uh, in, say, in Sydney, um, clearly that was a long time ago. That was before September the 11th, so before that threat had really come onto the world, the global stage. So now I think it's a time to, um, to sort of to make sure that all the bases are covered. Now, as I said, I know that people have been complaining about the security of, of bringing air defence assets onto their homes and bringing military assets into the uh, the capital. But this morning I, I've been in Blackheath, I've, I've sat and had a coffee with a few of the locals and, and chatted to them and asked them if they're concerned about it. And, and the majority of people actually have said, well, look, you know, this is this needs to be done. This is the threat needs is, is there. They say there's no specific threat, but we all know that there could be a threat. And so therefore, you know, why not prepare for the worst? Um, they don't see it as being an issue when they have guys uh, in uniform on, on Blackheath like they are here. Um, they're more just, you know, they're thinking, well, this is a huge event. It's the world's biggest sporting occasion. You know, we, we, have a, we, we, need to, we need to be careful and we need to be prepared just in case the worst should happen. And I think that's what the, the military are going along the lines of. Um, but what they'd also say is that the air defence plan and the air security plan is just building on what exists at the moment. Um, yesterday at Northolt, when the typhoons arrived, it was immediately obvious that the, the military were going to tell us that the fact is that we have an air defence strategy 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, but all we're doing for the Olympics is building on that existing backbone and, and enhancing the plan uh, to specifically protect um, in, to London. In, um, there's also been a lot of... Um, sorry, go on, Kate. Now, I was going to say, and on the exercise testing Olympic security, there is more to come this week and over the weekend, isn't there? Absolutely, it is. It's building up. Just the first phase was down in Weymouth, obviously around the uh, the sailing event. But uh, tomorrow, HMS Ocean will arrive at Greenwich along with a, a fleet of Lynx aircraft and the Marines. Um, HMS Ocean will be based on the, on the Thames for the Olympics and will also be used as accommodation for many of the security staff that are working there. Uh, and as, as you heard in one of the clips earlier this weekend, there might be an increased air activity in London uh, as, the fo as the focus of the um, exercise switches to the capital and they play out all those scenarios that we've talked about. All right, James Banks, BFBS's Olympic security correspondent reporting from Blackheath. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Christopher, is all of this over the top, do you think? No, if you're going to exercise something, it's going to be pretty obvious today. So, no, it isn't over the top. I tell you on the side to this. One of my kids has got a flat in Bromley-by-Bow in London, East London. He thinks he's on the list for a rapier battery. He thinks this is brilliant because he's letting out his flat anyway and he's going to charge another 500 quid a week. For added security, he thinks it's absolutely marvellous. And there is a story there, isn't it? If you're going to have an organisation, sad times we live in, you have to have uh, rapier, ba rapier batteries around because you look at the skyline of London, the targets are obvious. Mm. Uh, just briefly, what security threats have been experienced at the Olympics in the past? Well, if you go back to the Munich Olympics, of course, and this was the, uh, the terrible hostage-taking at the security, that, is, that really was the first one that people recognise that you can take a political point and a terrorist point to a very sporting occasion. Right. Just briefly, Christopher, what's coming up next week? I think Saturday. Saturday is important, apart from Kofi Annan actually reporting on Syria to the United Nations. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the Al-Qaeda man, the man who actually planned 9-11. Right. He is going on, beginning his trial in Guantanamo. All right, Christopher, thanks very much. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBS Sitrep.